Today on the show, we'll be trying out code words for all of these encrypted messages you sent us. Uh, uh, sassafras, uh, uh, Germany. Oh, Frosted God. flakes. Um. Oh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Password, capital P. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, that worked. We Whoa, can read these emails shit. now. Y'all are idiots. <laughs> Damn, let's get into this episode then. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today on the show, we're doing a mailbag. Yes. Welcome to our first ever mailbag episode of our Children of Dune book club series. Oh my gosh, I'm so stoked. We're now about a third of the way through the book, and we figured, hey, now's a good time to pause and try and respond to the absolute flood of messages and emails that we get from all of our dear listeners. So we're going to tackle as many as we can today. But before we get too far into it, let's do some housekeeping. Let's get the housekeeping out of the way. This episode will be spoiler-free up to the pages that we've covered so far in Children of Dune. Right. Now, of course, a reminder that the best way to support this show is to become a patron at patreon.com slash gamjabar. Yes. You get cool benefits like ad-free episodes and early access to these book club episodes. You get to hear them before everyone else does on the public feed. Of course, we have to give a huge shout out to our Quizats Hatterack level patrons, Case Aiken, Nate Hyde, mm. Gents. Uh. Here's a question <laughs> for y'all. Why are you so amazing? Why? How? 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 How'd you do it? <laughs> <laughs> we also have merchandise. Dune-themed goods for your body, walls, or other things. Gumjabarshop.com And if we missed your email today, not to worry, because we plan on actually having two more mailbag episodes over the course of this book club series. So check the schedule in the show notes. And be sure to send your thoughts and your questions and your pictures of your pets, which everyone is apparently doing now in their emails, which is incredible. Love it. Yeah. Send all of that to gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com and we'll try to get you in the next mailbag. Indeed we will. Okay. That's housekeeping. Time we get into the episode. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around. Right after this, we're getting into your questions. Welcome back, folks. Let's jump into some of your incredible messages. Let me just quickly, capital P-A-S-S-W-O-R-D, enter. Offensive that that's your password. Uh, <laughs> listeners, you, you really, really got to update harder. that. Yeah. yeah, you got to. Special characters, you know, do something. <laughs> Good Lord. Something, anything. <laughs> All right, let's jump into our first email today from Alexander Townsend. And this one's about other memory. Alexander writes, Quote, in the first book, it very much seems that the other memories that Jessica and Alia get access to are from sharing their consciousness with the Fremen Saedina, 
This is not a genetic line of memories, but an unbroken chain of ritual sharing of self between Saedinas dating back thousands of years. In comes Children of Dune, and Leto and Ganema also have other memories, but in this case, it is memories from their genetic line, and they didn't need someone living to deliberately pass their memories along to another person. Alia now also seems to have these genetic memories as well as her other memories, as the Baron can talk to her and take over her body. So there seem to be two types of other memory? How does someone get genetic memories? Is this a Kwisatz Haderach thing? End quote. Yeah. Three questions in one email. What a deal. <laughs> yeah, no, great questions too. Like, genuinely, this is the stuff. When we talk about Dune, we have to kind of pause and think about these almost fantasy elements nestled within the broader sci-fi universe. Right. And in short, you're correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Alia, Leto, and Ganema have basically a, a kind of different version of other memory than most Benny Jesuit Reverend Mothers can access. And honestly, even different than Paul could access. Right. I mean, Alia and Leto and Ganema are a very dangerous mix of being pre-born with those special Atreides genes that Paul had. And that combination, that like cocktail of power and breeding program gives them their unique abilities. Like getting access to genetic memories is not only a Kwisatz Haderach thing to like specifically answer that question for Alexander. Any Bene Gesserit can do that. Right. What makes it a Kwisatz Haderach thing is that you get access to all of your genetic memories, both male and female. When someone like Jessica passes the spice agony and becomes a reverend mother or a Saedina, she unlocks her own genetic memories along her female past. Right. So that is what differentiates the type of other memory that, for example, Jessica can unlock and what Paul and Ali and Leto and Ganima can because of their special genes. Yeah. It might be helpful to think about it this way. Like, let's stack the power rankings of other memory. Yeah. At the bottom tier, we have fully awakened Reverend Mothers get fucking wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> they have their female genetic memory only. Yes. Then we have Paul and Alia, who have all of their genetic memory with uh, some prescience. Paul more so than Alia, it seems like, but there's more to say about that. Yep. And then finally... The most potent that we see is Leto II and Ganema, who are not only preborn like Alia, they have genetic memory because they're awakened, and they also have degrees of prescience. Although, again, they're not really leaning into it at this point because of what's happening with Alia. Right. And I would also argue they are less inhibited by the ignorance around their condition, right? Like Alia yes. existing before them gives them a lot of data with which to kind of enhance their powers and capabilities. Yes, that, that's a very important point to remember as well. Leto and Ganema have the experiences of the people that came before them. Right. Paul and Alia, no one was around to teach them how to deal with prescience or to deal with having your full genetic memory unlocked. Right. All of that is unprecedented stuff. So yeah, that, that power ranking, I think, is for me, especially in in researching and answering this question was helpful. 
like you mentioned, though, Alia is a bit of an outlier in all of this. And uh, we're actually going to put a pin in that discussion because there's an email later where we will discuss Alia a bit more in depth. So hold on to those thoughts, dear listener. Indeed. Now, next up, we have a related question about other memory. It's kind of a hot topic these days. <laughs> and this email comes from Hector Mariani. Quote, are Paul and Chani's memories of the twins genetic byproducts, or do you see it more mystical in nature? End quote. I loved that we got this email because we did touch on this subject a little bit in our recording of the last book club episode, but the discussion kind of got lengthy and windy and tangenty, so I ended up cutting it. Right. Hector's question then gives us the perfect opportunity to revisit it. From last episode's reading, we got this really beautiful and horrifying description of how other memory works when Leto is talking to the memory version of Paul in his head. This is the quote. We live only through the reflection of your awareness. Your memory creates us. The danger, it is a precise memory. And those of us who loved power and gathered it at any price, those can be more precise. End quote. So that's Paul explaining to his son how these personas in his head have been created, how this other memory works. And I find this pretty beautiful. Like, on some level, we all do this, right? We all keep our loved ones, whether they're pets or family members or friends or neighbors, in our hearts after they've left our lives for one reason or another. Right. Obviously, us sort of normal people, plebeians <laughs> can't perfectly recall every little detail about our loved ones, right? Especially as time passes, those memories will become faint and hazy and fade over time, unfortunately. Paul is revealing here to Leto that, well, you're not exactly an everyday plebeian. You're a preborn child. So you have perfect recall. You have precise memory. You know exactly what I was like when I was alive, you know, exactly what your mother was like, and so on and so forth down their genetic line. That is what almost gives these personas, quote unquote, life inside their head, is that they can recall them with 100% accuracy. That is pretty cool to me to think like, here's a definition of how other memory works. And to answer Hector's question, it doesn't feel to me like a sword and sorcery thing. Right. This feels to me like a pretty cool like science fiction take on just how regular everyday human memory works. Yeah, I completely agree. I think this is a very human thing to say recalling a person. Uh, grandmother always loved that I sang, you know, that that is a part of who I was to her and it's a part of who I am today because of that. Mm -hmm. That recollection guides maybe our actions and our choices moving forward. So then it makes sense that Frank Herbert, who's crafting this universe that takes place 30,000 years from now, where the biggest ask of us as the reader is, can you imagine human qualities to the nth degree? Humans who have doubled down on their ability to do calculus in their head, their ability to recall what came before, their ability to control their bodies and their nerve endings, you know, like... All of what Frank is asking us to do is expand what it means to be human. And so I love that 
that this is like Leto and Ganema are looking at, oh, it's, it's the preciseness of our recollection that will determine how much power it has over us and what we can do and how we can decide. Right. Now, you, you put it perfectly there. I loved how you said this expansion of what it means to be human, because I think the entire Dune saga explores that. Mentats are an expansion of the human mind. Benny Gesserit are an expansion of mind and body. And here with Leto and Ganema, we see yet another expansion. What could humans be like if our memory was perfect? It's all really fun questions that the Dune Saga explores. Yeah, that's true. All right, let's move on to our next question. This one's from Discord from patron Chubby Like Laser. Nice. <laughs> Thanks for making me say that out loud. Yeah, <laughs> Chubby like laser. <laughs> and this is actually a question we get all the time. We've yeah. gotten this ever since we started the podcast. So now's the time we're going to answer it. And then next time someone asks us this question, I'm just going to send them a clip. <laughs> yeah. Chubby like laser wrote in Discord, quote, One thing I still haven't quite figured out in having read the book at least three times by now is how Alia was possessed by the Baron. I thought women didn't have access to the male side of their genetic memory. Is there anywhere in the series that says being pre-born, girls can access both sides? End quote. So this is a great question. And actually, it's one that, you're right, we have gotten quite a bit. Uh, so much so that I was basically able to go back to one of those seven-page emails I've written uh, <laughs> and pull a lot from there. But to be clear, chubby like laser. That's Mr. Chubby Like Laser. Mr. Dr. Chubby, <laughs> Chubby Like Laser. <laughs> Professor of Law. Uh, yes. No, Alia is definitely a point of confusion for a lot of people, most of us. Yeah. And honestly, there are a few explanations for why this could be. So Alia has always been kind of an inconsistent character. Like in-universe, speaking from lore perspective, Alia simply doesn't follow some of the established rules because the Jessica-Leto combination was more powerful than the Bene Gesserit expected, and their theories of why a male Bene Gesserit would be the Kwisatz Haderach could have just been flawed. Yeah. Consider that, like, the Bene Gesserit kill every abomination who shows up. Is it possible they don't fully understand the rules and limitations of this thing they keep murdering? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Now, as a possible meta explanation, stepping outside of lore for a second, it is possible that Frank hadn't fully nailed down the details that surround the kind of powers of Leto II and Ganema when he was writing that first book and Messiah. So it's kind of generally acknowledged that Alia, who predates a lot of maybe those broader rules, is simply just Alia the Strange, right? Is strange. Yeah. And doesn't follow the rules that he later started to set and explore. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up. Like we are going to dive into like a possible lore theory, lore explanation, but yes, like it's a book written by a human in reality. And like maybe the meta explanation is that just uh, the Ali stuff was a retcon because Frank hadn't quite figured out the details until he started writing children of Dune. I mean, the books were written years and years and years apart and you know, he decided to change some things. So yeah. there is always that explanation. But we do love a good lore theory. So we are going to explore that side of it too. Right. Now, regarding the other part of the question, her access to Baron Harkonnen, 
To be clear, she only possesses Baron's other voice through abomination. So, in other words, we don't get confirmation that Alia has access to his full genetic memory. He's just there as part of her being an abomination and succumbing to abomination. And as far as we know, when any Bene Gesserit is preborn, risk of abomination can come from any of their ancestors, male or female, regardless of how they have access to memories. Like, it could just be, I see all of my female ancestors, but some unknown male ancestor who longs for power is the one that takes over. Like, that's possible. Yeah, it could just be a one-way street in that case. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning that we kind of brought this up earlier, but Alia can be considered a Kwisatz Haderach. Again, what we have is the very rigid Bene Gesserit definition of what they want in a Kwisatz Haderach, this male who can access both male and female memories. But Alia has very similar power sets to Paul. Right. And while she can't really control her prescience in the way that Paul can, there are other explanations for why outside of just, oh, it's because she's a girl. Right. The difference in their power levels could be explained by Paul's training. Yes. Because mm -hmm. Paul, since birth, has been trained by some of the best <laughs> fighters, politicians, Benny Gesserits, and Mentats in the galaxy. And he was actually trained to be a Mentat himself. So by the time he's out in the desert and the Spice unlocks his Kwisatz Haderach visions of the future, he basically has the ability to even compute all that raw data because of that Mentat training, because of the Bene Gesserit training his mother has been giving him. Alia pops out of the womb, preborn with a bunch of fucked up personalities and memories in her head. Sure, she has some Bene Gesserit training passed down genetically, but she doesn't have years and years of the actual like growing up, learning, training, and mental abilities that Paul does. So it's easy to imagine why she's so overwhelmed by prescience, whereas Paul can try and actually grab it by the reins and point it in a direction. Right. Like the mentats describe a floating state where you're not like free association, where you're like not clinging to things the way that maybe a normal person's mind would, because yeah. the power of a mentat is not pure computation. It's intuitive leaps given seemingly disparate data points. So if Alia gets like a whisper of something that's going to happen on Caladan and then a completely seemingly unjointed vision of something that happens on Seleucus Secundus, Paul's mind might process that as a clear cause and effect, whereas she's like, what the fuck am I seeing and gets overwhelmed. Right. Exactly. I mean, as we're speaking, do you remember our discussion about hate slash Duncan Idaho? And how the Tleilaxu trained him as a Mentat, so when his psyche broke yeah. and his oh. genetic memories came flooding back ah, in, he'd be yeah. able to process them correctly and not be overwhelmed and die yeah. like all of the previous experiments. I think that's key. I think having that Mentat computational training is so key to this raw data that starts flooding into your brain when you unlock prescience or genetic memory. Yeah, that's huge. That's cool. So that's our... Very lore-dense, heavy discussion about the whole Alia, why she has the Baron in her head thing. Of course, our listeners are amazing. And another patron in the Discord actually responded to Mr. Dr. Lawyer Chubby Like Laser. Patron Alphonse had this 
pretty incredible theory that we want to share as well. They wrote, quote, this was always my headcanon, and it's backed up by nothing that I can remember, <laughs> which is a great way to start a pitch. <laughs> yeah. They continue. Alia, when she underwent the ritual, caused her to become preborn, and she was in the flux state where the fetus is neither male nor female, and thus gained memories from both male and female sides. End quote. Mm, That's sure. an interesting theory. Yeah. I think it falls apart a little bit, like once you get later into Messiah and Children of Dune. I feel like my tinfoil hat almost fell off <laughs> reading this one, uh, <laughs> but I caught it, you know, ultimately again. I think Alphonse saved it by starting with <laughs> uh, headcanon backed up by nothing. Yeah. It's cool. It's a, it's a very cool idea. For sure. And again, as we've stated many times and will continue to state on this podcast, Dune lore, it's messy, baby. It's messy. All righty. With some of that heavy discussion out of the way, let's actually take a breather now and take a short break. But do not go anywhere, folks, because... The second half of this episode is full of some silly, fun, quirky questions, and we can't wait to get into them. We'll see you in a minute. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get into some more messages. The next message we get is from Robert Pierce in Discord about dating in the siege. <laughs> this is a fantastic, silly question. Robert asks, quote, Given the nature of Amtal, knowing a thing by testing it to find its breaking point. How do you think that core value plays out in the Siege dating scene? In what ways? How does that value manifest and play out at the local Siege cafe or coffee service spit station? End quote. Jesus. Hilarious. Amazing question. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, that's so fun. I think this is hilarious to think about because... Amtal would 100% in my mind lead to this culture where young couples have to go to <laughs> some hilarious extreme, hilarious and dangerous extremes <laughs> to profess their love for each other. Oh, sure. Because, like, think how much Amtal complicates dating. Right. How, how do you test your love for a person without taking it to the breaking point, right? That's the basic philosophy behind Amtal. You don't know the truth of a thing until you take it to its breaking point. If you treat your love that way, <laughs> yeah. what do you have to do? It raises so many interesting questions. And I wonder if young couples are constantly sort of wondering, like, I don't know, have I pushed this relationship to the breaking point? How do I know this is true love? Yeah. Does she love you for you? Or your water rings, bro. What's the truth here? And so, yeah, I mean, like, Robert's question had me thinking, like, this would lead to some really daring feats to profess your love to a partner, right? Like, climb, climb onto a worm with no maker hooks or fast from food and water for days out in the desert. And if you survive, this is true love. Maybe something wilder, like eating milk with no cereal. Like oh, these monstrous. Fremen. <laughs> I'm monstrous. I imagine young Fremen couples are doing some like really like extreme, like jackass three shit just to prove that they love love each other. So I had to kind of break it down into the the different words that Robert had thrown at us because it might not have been what he meant. But when I heard cafe scene, you know, coffee station and dating, 
Those read as like three different things. So let's talk about it. Let's use this as an opportunity to explore these things. Yeah. The cafe scene in the sieges. I think there are little cafes in the sieges that were made too cozy, too full of books with immaculate vibes, but too immaculate. And the entire concept broke down. So Fremen cafes are perfectly kind of treading that line, that Chris Knife's edge between <laughs> cozy and, and, and full of books and relaxing without being too much because they found it through Amtal. Okay? Nice. Perfect. Cafes. It's my personal fantasy. They found the truth of cafes. Love it. They, the true nature of cafes. They figured it out. Regarding the coffee station, I think every Fremen has burnt their tongue on too hot coffee. They've put too much <laughs> salted caramel creamer in their coffee, or they've tried too many of the many, many milk substitutes. Chair dog milk, they've tried it. <laughs> Slig milk, they've tried it, you know? Oh, looking, <laughs> looking for those alternatives. Shy halud, shy butter, they've tried it, you know? <laughs> so I think every Fremen drinks coffee the way it is best enjoyed. They've used Amtal to figure out coffee, which is black. Just drink it black. Yep. If you drink coffee any other way than black, I think you're wrong, and I think the Fremen have figured that out. Yes. Regarding dating, this is really where we get juicy, and I, I will point out that we are recording on the day of Pride, NYC. So, hell yeah. Hell yeah. I think that among the sieges, nestled in the brutal sands of Arrakis, Amtal in the dating scene leads to sexual and romantic experimentation that will blow your mind. Mm. Okay, you think you're straight? Really? Have you tested that theory to the breaking point? <laughs> I'm talking spin the Chris knife, no holds barred. Wild games of truth and dare. Debaucherous, rated X versions of Simon Says. Yes. I think that young men, women, and every other gender in Siege to Burr share water in more ways than one. And you know what? I'm calling it. I think Fremen are hyper LGBTQ friendly because they've all been there. And fucking why not? You're out in the desert with your bro in a little still tent. What happens in the desert stays in the desert, then comes back to you with the siege. Oh, my God. Do you have a husband now? Hell yeah, you do. <laughs> why not? I'm tall. Dating. Love it. That's such a fun way to interpret Robert's question <laughs> is them pushing their sexuality and sexual experiences to the breaking point. Yeah. Gamont's got nothing on Siege to Burr, apparently. Yo, facts. <laughs> Moving on from that, let's talk about our next message. This is an email from Thomas Jordan that is going to lead us down another rabbit hole. This is such a fun thought exercise. Thomas wrote, quote, if you could adapt the first Dune book into a television series with an endless budget, how would you structure it? How many episodes or seasons? I could see maybe three 45-minute episodes per book. Break it up into Dune, Mwadip, The Prophet. Mm -hmm. It would give some breathing room to expand on lore and spend more time with the characters. End quote. Thomas, oh. you do not know the can of worms you've just unlocked. It's mine. It's my can of worms. <laughs> big can. <laughs> Let's do it. This is it. Your pitch, Leo. HBO execs, tune in. Okay, everyone buckle up. Bold take. I would write out the timeline of Dune as five different parallel miniseries. 
written shit. <laughs> to be viewed and experienced sequentially, building and releasing the primary tensions in as careful a way as possible. And for reference, every episode is an hour long. Hear me out. Five miniseries, okay? The first miniseries. This would detail how Atreides moving from Caladan to Arrakis leading up to the attack on Arakeen. But we are not with one of the known characters. We are with a young House Atreides guard who is, like, relatively newly recruited from some Caladanian city. We barely see anybody, right? Duke's family? Distant. You're not seeing them every day. You're a low-ranking person. That's the perspective we get. And the final episode ends with them dying. I do want to use this as an opportunity to explore the personal tragedy of the layperson. Like, we talk about Paul and Jessica, thank God they survived. What about the fucking thousands of, like, Atreides people, personnel, who got yeah. killed in that attack, got executed by Beast Raban? Like, what the fuck? That's so brutal. Let's explore that. And let's look at the cost to these people being afraid, wanting to go home to Caladan in those final moments really painting a picture of how bad this attack was. I would want to feel how powerless most of House Atreides was to that attack. And this would be like Chernobyl, the, the miniseries Chernobyl, like excellent writing, a focus on character and acting and like living in the scenes with characters. This is not necessarily about this character development. It's more about what is it like to be a human in these moments? And it would be riveting. Okay. That's the first miniseries, six episodes, six hours. Love it. Then we get a four-episode miniseries dedicated to the same events across the same timeline, but following Piter DeVry from his earliest scheming all the way up to his death to Duke Leto's tooth. <laughs> to be clear, we see Piter's meticulous planning. We get a sense of how violent and dangerous the Baron is. Uh, and while we're seeing that, we also see that perhaps Piter isn't fully aware of what's happening with Paul and the Fremen, and that's for us who know the story. We see his little blind spots, right? But we also get a full a sense of his full array of schemes, right? Like, we're told that they attacked storehouses and caused uprisings in Atreidean cities, and, like, we're told these things. I want to see Piter putting them into action— and I want to see a totally different perspective on the same timeline leading up to we're in the Arakeen dinner hall and we finally see Duke Leto like clear in the foreground. Here he is. But it's in this moment of death and vulnerability and weakness, right? Yeah. I also want to use this as an opportunity to see like teasing glimpses of Paul unconscious bound on the cart down in the basement and Jessica's brief interrogation with Baron and Piter. Shifting gears entirely. Five episode miniseries. Five hours dedicated to, drumroll, Jameis of the Fremen. Oh my god. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> I want to spend five hours with Jameis seeing how good of a man he is. I want to drive home the beauty of the Fremen culture, the breadth of Jameis's compassion. We become friends with Jameis across five episodes, Okay. Final episode, leading up to his tragic death, this wonderful man, Jameis, is killed by this <laughs> mysterious fucking kid, off-worlder, who's eager to claim the title of God's prophet. This would basically be the same timeline, starting while Paul is on Caladan, leading up to Jameis's death. 
Now, naturally, the last two episodes give us our second perspective on Paul Atreides, but this time it's from the Fremen kind of viewpoint and vantage point. Yeah. I also see this as an opportunity to explore, like, I want to hear the skeptical Fremen. I want to hear the people like, uh, like Jameis and, and like some of the people from uh, Messiah who go, wow, yeah, that sounds really convenient that this is benefiting him so much, you know? I want to see how that plays out, how that conversation of, I don't know, Jameis, he seems like the Lisa Al-Gaib. And Jameis goes, are you kidding me? Like, he hasn't been tested. He's a child. Have you seen him? He's, you know, I want to see those conversations really painting a picture of how insane it is that Paul exists for the Fremen. Right. The next series would be a six-episode series following Fade Rautha, leading up to his death <laughs> by the same fucking child who killed Jameis, only this time, of course, the child's a little older and, like, more cocky and frustrating for us as the viewer. Like, oh, look at this fucking guy. So not only would this bring our timeline close to our finale, the finale of Dune, including events like the rise of Muad'Dib, the capturing of Fufir, we'd also see a lot more of the Imperium's politics at play. Because keep in mind, Fade Rautha's in the court. He's on Giddy Prime. And Fade is without ambiguity, our protagonist. We see how handsome and charming he is. This is a guy who's being raised and groomed to lead House Harkonnen, and Baron Harkonnen's a piece of shit, and Fade tries to kill him even. This is a rallying moment. This series would, say, would be very pro-Fade Harkonnen, uh, Fade Rautha Harkonnen, and we just like wouldn't talk about the fact that they like use slaves and <laughs> things like that. Uh, <laughs> we would have a very narrow focus, but one that really drives home that fate is like a complete human with his intentions and his aspirations. He's not just a pawn of the Baron. He has his own plans and his own aspirations. Yeah. And in a word, the finale would be crushing with the ever-present expectation that fate would succeed. Because after all, who the fuck is this Paul kid? Paul? Boring name. Probably a bad guy, right? Fade Rautha? Hell yeah. Cool. Finale, Fade dies when he's like caught off guard by Paul screaming, I won't do it, or whatever Paul says when he doesn't use the word pineapple. <laughs> now, finally, thank you for your patience, everyone. Finally, we have our seven-episode series following Paul Atreides from the morning of his Gamjabar test to his surmounting of the Galactic Throne. Now, his potential to ruin the galaxy would be constantly present. Although, of course, we're seeing lots of examples of his charisma and him demonstrating, like, virtuous qualities throughout. The series would also serve to answer all of the questions the other series raised, but in the same way that Dune Messiah does. Like, here are the answers, but to be clear, Paul is not a hero, right? He's doing his best. He's not the, like, villain that Jameis saw him as. He's not the villain that Fade Rautha saw him as. We have a whole new perspective, but... He is not purely good either. Right. It raises those red flags that come up at the end of the book as well. Right. So anyway, there you have it. Five Ooh. miniseries that tell the tale of Dune. I was thinking about a sixth <laughs> from, oh <my> a, God. <laughs> from like a Benny Desert perspective, but I don't know how it would fit into the, uh, the timeline with everything else. But listen, it's parallel storytelling in a way that hasn't been done super well since Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow and Orson Scott Card's a piece of shit. 
so we can do it better <laughs> without any of the moral, ethical issues of being shitty people. <laughs> wow. What an epic pitch. That's amazing. I'm Leo. sweating. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sweating just listening. <laughs> well, anyway, that was my like giant TED talk. Uh, <laughs> tell me about your idea. I know that I kind of have set you up to maybe, I don't know, this is going to feel fail. very like short. <laughs> Epically fail. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, it's just going to be like a shorter answer. But ultimately, I'm curious, what would you, what would be your treatment? Definitely a shorter answer, definitely way smaller in scope. But for me, reading this question, I immediately was like, I would want a season, an entire season's worth to explore the story of Dune. And I'd actually would want more than three 45-minute episodes like Thomas wrote, or even three 90-minute episodes like the Sci-Fi Channel did. Right. I'd want a season that's like, eight episodes, maybe even up to 10 episodes. And I'd want to fill those episodes with some of the behind the scenes stuff that happens off page in the book. Something that comes to mind for me is that secret raid on the Harkonnen spice stores on Getty Prime that Thufir like planned and executed and it happened entirely behind the scenes. Yeah. That could be a really incredible part of an episode in the series that helps flesh out the universe explains more about spice and the economy and shows us more of Giddy prime, which we see very little of in the book as well. So those are the types of scenes I would include. We'd get a full on banquet scene. One episode I imagine would be all banquet scene. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Just cool. to appease people who saw the Denny Villeneuve movie and were like, it's a good scene? fucking scene. <laughs> it's a great scene, but I think it's a scene that doesn't work in a movie because you need way more time. Yeah. With an entire hour of television, you could do that banquet scene justice and truly translate what's on the page. I would follow the Sci-Fi Channel's lead in giving characters like Irulan way more screen time and way more development. I think we gushed a lot in our Sci-Fi series episodes about how well they treated Irulan in that miniseries. Right. I would follow suit. In fact, I would copy a lot of what they did, frankly, because they did an incredible job with it. I'd also follow suit by leaning more into the politics of the Imperium because I personally am just so fascinated about the inner workings of the Imperium and how the Lance Rod works. And, right. uh, you know, I wouldn't go full Star Wars Trade Federation, but I, I'd lean a little more political. <laughs> just an entire episode, hour long, dedicated to someone pushing papers on a desk. They're like, <laughs> oh, that ducal tithe is late coming in and our chome shares are down. And Abu is like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. One whole episode would just be a C-SPAN thing. It would just be like an hour of C of Imperial C-SPAN. Now, I, w I do worry that my pitch is now leading to a show that would be too much of a slow burn, right? Like stretching it out to 10 episodes might make it so that there's some very slow moments throughout the series. To maybe counteract that, I would really lean into making the first half of the season like this political thriller by leaning more into, like I said, the political, the politics of the Imperium, but also really hamming up the traitor plot, really making that a central focus for the first few episodes. Yeah. Who is the traitor? What's happening with the traitor? Maybe by episode two, we fucking realize it's Yui. And then it's this like, oh my God, when is Yui going to strike tension? Right. Sort of through the next few episodes. I'd lean way into that. Uh, 
almost in like an opposite way that the Denny Villeneuve movie entirely cut it out, I'd make it a huge focal point at the start. You know, it kind of reminds me of like paranormal activity. The thing that they do really well is they dial up your sensitivity to little phenomena where like just the chair will move by two inches. And it's so creepy because it's after like three minutes of still footage uh, that you're like, whoa, the chair moved by two inches and it's this big deal. So I imagine, yeah, you're hinting at these little moments. How is he going to do it? Poison in the drink? Is he going to grab his like knife? Maybe you see him fiddling with a sharp thing and it's these little hints drawn out over hours. And then the pacing of the Arakeen attack on the palace could be so overwhelming for the viewer in a really spectacular way. Totally, totally. And that's exactly how I sort of imagined the latter half of the season. Like the first half, political thriller, intrigue, Irulan, imperial politics, Yui, about to betray them. We're all like balancing on that knife's edge. Right. And then the second half, honestly, would kind of play out very much like the movie does. Attack on Arakeen, flight out into the desert, meeting the Fremen, joining the Fremen, all of that sort of desert sci-fi, Paul the Messiah stuff would just happen in the second half of the episode. It'd be a lot a lot more sort of like high-octane, blood-pounding action. Right. That would result in the penultimate episode in my series, which would be the Battle of Arakeen. And then that leads us, that's sort of the climax, and then that leads us into the resolution, the final episode, the 10th episode of my series, that takes place entirely in Arakeen Palace. And honestly... I would just submit the entire fucking final chapter as the script for that episode. Just <laughs> one for one, let's adapt this bitch. I love that final chapter so much. And to see it sort of slowly play out on screen as you watch Shaddam's <laughs> galaxy, his empire <laughs> unravel, yeah. and you watch Paul turn into this horrifying, despotic ruler both out of necessity and also out of, like, wanting to because his kid is dead. Yeah, that would be, like, a chilling way to end the season. And I would, I'd again, want to give that space and time to play with all of those emotions. I'd want that entire last episode to be that final chapter of Dune. So that's my pitch. A longer series, probably 10 episodes, starting off slow with some political intrigue, a lot of action and desert stuff in the middle, and then wrapping up with the Battle of Arakeen and Paul's ascendancy to the throne. I can't wait to see Emperor Shaddam have to hand over his uncreased Air Jordans. Ah, uh, yes. In the adaptation. <laughs> like a four-minute, very emotional sequence, uncut, one just a one-shot of just yep. having to part. Excellent. Listen, HBO, how many times do we have to times? proposition you like this? <laughs> Laying on a bed covered in rose petals. Sign us a check. <laughs> Just blank check. Give it to us. We will draw make something. Draw us like one of your French girls. Draw, draw us like a whole season of French girls. <laughs> we won't let you down. We'll make something great. We will make something great. Let us be the next Benioff and Weiss, and we promise that we won't totally biff it in the last few seasons. <laughs> yeah. We have the books. They're finished. <laughs> we right. don't have to make them up. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Thomas, thank you for the question. Clearly, you fully unshackled and unleashed us. But questions like these are so fun. They're fun thought exercises. 
it's fun to speculate and pitch like what we would do with potential properties in the Dune universe. So lovely email and uh, thank you for giving us this space and time and excuse to uh, geek out about it in this way. Yeah, totally. All right. Our next message comes from listener Isabel Waro, who shared some really cool insight about Leto 2's name in an email. Isabel writes, quote, I was listening to one of the latest episodes about Messiah, where you were talking about how Paul names his son Leto, even though his first son, who died, was also named Leto. I didn't realize that that was something people used to do when infant mortality was so high. I'm Jewish, and that is a really popular thing to do in our culture. We name our children after relatives who have died so that the child will inhabit the virtues of the one who came before them. There is also a bit of superstition that two people with the same name can't live around the same time and will bring bad luck. Oh, no. (laughs) But that one is a bit dark. (laughs) I wonder if this was something Frank had known or Leto was just the easiest option. End quote. And, whoa, I didn't know that about uh, Jewish communities. That's so interesting. Yeah, that is so interesting. Isabel, thank you for sharing that. I had no idea that this was a popular cultural practice. And now I do wonder if this is something that Frank took into consideration as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I've i always maintained, I think Frank was doing something with like ancient Scottish traditions and ancient, you know, just things that are done today, but also things that have been done for hundreds of years. This idea yeah. of like, well, the first one died, so we use the name again because it honors not only that baby's death, but also the person you were naming it for in the first place. Also, yeah, fucking other Leos out in the world, fucking up my luck. Damn it. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Is this Highlander rules? Do I get more lucky every one of them I defeat in combat? <laughs> or the one by uh, with Jet Li? Oh my God. The number of abus I'd have to go out there and kill just to up my chances of winning the lottery. This yeah. It's crazy. Anyway, Isabel, you you have clearly sent us on like a very murderous tangent, but you're we really appreciated your email and your insight. And we love when our listeners share their own experiences and worldviews because it's so fascinating and amazing to hear how other people interpret this story that we all love, you know, the, this world that we all love so much. Indeed. Okay. Let's end today's mailbag episode on Actually, a slightly off-topic question in an email from Jamie Nathan. Jamie writes, quote, I have read most of the Dune books up to this point. I've read books one through five, and I'm currently reading Chapter House, but I've hit burnout, and I'm making slow progress on the sixth book because I decided on reading every book back to back to back to back without stopping. My question is, has burnout ever happened to either of you when reading a series? And were you able to pull yourself out of it and finish it? After this, I'm planning to read Terry Pratchett's Guards, Guards. End quote. What a great question. What a fun sort of off-topic question. We love getting these as well, you know? Like, we love talking Dune, but it's always fun to respond to other sort of off-the-path questions as well. Right. Leo, I'm curious about your response to Jamie. How do you deal with burnout when you're trying to read a series or consume some content? Yeah, well, first off, Guards, Guards, fucking delightful book. Have fun with it. And if listeners, hey, if you haven't read Terry Pratchett, Guards Guards is a fantastic way to get familiar with his writing. So to your question, yeah. Yep, burnout happens. 
uh, it happened to me like six times with the Dune series alone. Uh, <laughs> one one per book. <laughs> literally, yeah. Or maybe six times per book, 36 times. <laughs> and literally, like, I got my degree in art and it's working out and, great. And, yep, okay, got it. <laughs> yeah. I, thank you for being so curious forever. And to be clear, like, I love art. When I go to art museums, I love it. I love seeing the different paintings and the styles. I like thinking about how the artists did it, but I cannot hold up for longer than an hour or two. Like it is exhausting engaging with really dense, rich things. And I think that's just how the human mind is wired. Reading masterpiece after masterpiece, reading fantastic books that demand a lot from you as the reader will inevitably burn you out, no doubt. And this is true for music and writing and reading and every form of art. I think you listen to rich, dense, masterful pieces of music can exhaust the ear. Right. I think you need to cleanse the palate, honestly. Like, if you if you are reading Dune, and then Dune Messiah, and then Children of Dune, first of all, I think back-to-back might be a little challenging, just in, in general. It might be good to do something very different, like a nonfiction or something that's, like, very fantasy. Um, or maybe just, like, a young adult fiction book. Like, Smutty read something... romance. Like, yeah. <laughs> Read a Harlequin novel. Fuck it. Go to the airport. <laughs> Get one with a sexy man on the cover. Pretend it's Duncan Idaho. <laughs> Whatever you want to do, I think cleansing the palate is a good thing. And honestly, that could be reading another book. It could also just be give it a couple of weeks. Like, I tried to jump right into Heretics after finishing God Emperor. And I was like, uh, no, I can't. Can't do it. Same. And I gave it like two months. And then I read it. And it was like, this is a masterpiece. I love this. So... My recommendation is don't feel pressured to read anything if it stops vibing for you. If it's not the right time for you, it's not the right time. Like reading something that you want to like, that the author wants you to like in a headspace where you're not going to like it doesn't serve you anything and it doesn't serve the art or the artist. Um, yeah, don't run on fumes. You know, you don't want to you don't want to miss out on the nuance of a really great book if your brain is burnt out. So I think it's good. I think it's good to take breaks and um, especially and that's what I that's what I do. But what about you, Abu? Uh, have you heard of this term burnout? <laughs> uh, maybe once or twice. Yeah. Uh, now, we, we've talked about how we're both kind of workaholics on this podcast before. And yep. yeah, I mean, like burnout could be the title of my biography. It's <laughs> something that I am constantly dealing with as a chronically busy person. When it comes to books, though, specifically, I've actually started implementing this new sort of 25% rule where I will stop reading a book if I am still bored with it a fourth of the way through. Ah, gotcha. Like I used to growing up and even recently used to just every book I picked up and chose to read. I was like, I got to see this through to the end. No more. I've decided... I don't have the time for stuff that I'm just not, like you said, vibing with. When it comes to long series, though, like Dune, I actually have never just powered through a whole series back to back. I'm impressed that Jamie powered through such dense material, like five Dune books and is now attempting the sixth. Yeah. I usually do what you suggested, Leo. I mix in different books constantly, whether it's different genres or different authors or even like even within the same genre, like I'll try something that's hard sci-fi and then switch to something that's like very soft sci-fi. 
because I need that palate cleanser. I can't just like force myself to power through the same universe because I know I'll get burnt out and I'll also very likely get bored. For example, actually, at the start of this year, like all the way back in like January or February, I read N.K. Jemison's Incredible The Fifth Season, which is part of a trilogy. And <laughs> it is now the end of June. I have yet to actually start the sequel, which is called <laughs> Obelisk Gate. Yeah. And who knows when I'll finally get around to finishing the trilogy and reading the last book. That's not because I don't want to read them. They've been on my like library wish list since January, February for the last six months. I just have read other things in between. Yeah, I'll I'll share kind of to sympathize with people who can't do that. I I have like a dumb mushy brain. <laughs> I, when I if I read like Game of Thrones after you know Dune, I would get confused. I'd be like, oh yeah, Planet Tyrell and like the Red Viper of House Harkonnen. I would get shit mixed up so quick <laughs> because it's like very similar texturally. You have all of these characters and these different names and Tleilaxu and Benny Tleilax, but also the the no face assassin face dancer, you know, like yeah. I would get very confused. So I do the same thing. I'll mix in books, but that's why I read Guards Guards because it was so different from Dune. There was no chance of me getting characters or planets confused. And it's also why I was I felt safe reading Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir because it's got like one character <laughs> like the whole time. So I'm like, okay, one character on a ship most of the book sounds like something that won't confuse me, right? Mm, mm -hmm. I did call him Holtzman in my head a couple of times. But <laughs> I just to have some sympathy out there, if y'all out there are like me and you get things confused, that's why I kind of, I think, be cognizant of what is out there that's really good, but in different genres as well, just in case you're like me and you struggle a little bit keeping things consistent. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like everyone's reading journey is different. Yeah, like, totally. I feel like there's this like hyper, almost like bro-y book culture that's like, how many books did you read this year? <laughs> it's like, right. yeah. dude, I like read one comic book, chill. And that's <laughs> totally fine. I, yeah. I had a roommate who was like dating this girl who used to read like fucking like, it was crazy, like a book a day sort of thing. Yeah. And so he was insecure and was just like, well, now I, I'm trying to like read and force myself to read X number of books this month. And I'm like, dude, just read the book. It's fine. Like, why are you gamifying reading and trying to hit some sort of like Q1 fucking sales metric of like, this is how many <laughs> books I read in this quarter. Like, uh, and yeah, so I guess like that, that this is kind of a tangent off of Jamie's question, but yeah, everyone's book reading journey is their own. And like, I sometimes do crazy things. Like I'm, I, I'm sometimes like reading three books at the same time. And they're all sci-fi books. And oh, I, I am fine. And I'm finding myself getting confused and mixing up like yeah. shit. Like what yes. concept was in which book? And some people can do that perfectly. I have figured out like my limit is two. I can read two books at the same time, any more than that, and I'll get confused. If we talked for too long about one of those books, I would get confused. <laughs> I don't even have to read it. I'd be like, uh, right, the lightsabers from Dune. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, th that's a bit of a tangent. But Jamie's question made me think of that, too, about my roommate who was, like, stressed about reading. Like, reading is a fun thing. You should not be stressed about it. Totally. Do what works best for you. And on that note. <laughs> <laughs>
we have some reading to recommend to you, dear listener. Yes. <laughs> you actually have to do this one by this end of Q2. This one's required, though. It's not fun. It's not good. It's just do it, okay? We have to hit the sales <laughs> metrics by the end of the fucking quarter, okay? It's super reasonable, though. It's like 50 pages <laughs> at a time. Come on. If you're not keeping up, there's we got to talk. Hit us up in Discord if you're not keeping up, and we'll scold you. I don't know. Yeah. Page 203 in the in the uh, paperback edition that we use of Children of Dune is your assignment. Yes. And it ends on this incredible sentence. <laughs> Quote, Ganima said, Unfortunately, our father left many man snails in our universe. <laughs> End quote. What could that be? Man snails. <laughs> he's a man. He's a snail. He goes slow. He's a snail. His eyes are on stocks and he's very slow. <laughs> oh, my God. Man snail merch. TBD on that. But it's coming. A man snail beanie with like oh eye God. stocks. I want it. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Deep and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. The biggest impact of Paul's jihad was Gamont got sexier. <laughs> the Fremen showed up and Gamontians are like, oh, no, don't look at our debaucherous attitudes, our heathenistic behavior. And the Fremen are like, I, I'm sorry. That's like vanilla shit, bro. Like, yeah. bro, none of you like were bleeding Thursday right ritual now. for me. Yeah. <laughs> none of you were bleeding. Jesus Christ. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. And all it cost was 61 billion lives. <laughs> some say it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> some, yes, some, not me, some. <laughs>